Romans 5, 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Morning. Does anybody recognize these? Membership cards, right? You fill these out every year, and on them you have to identify your spiritual gift and areas that you would like to serve. Uh, and if you ask yourself the question, what is my spiritual gift? A lot of times, at least since the 80s, somebody would have you fill out a survey. They call it a spiritual gift inventory, and they add up the scores and figure out where you fit. In my 20s, I spent a lot of time at another church listening to a guy named Chris Schroeder. He had a little different plan for how to figure out what your spiritual gift was, a little unconventional, and maybe with a little bit of wisdom. He said, if you don't know what your spiritual gift is, try it. <laughs> um, Dave, do you remember that? Yeah, okay. Dave was there. Um, so today, uh, I'm happy to introduce Caleb Lida. He is a student at Bethlehem College and Seminary studying theology and biblical studies. Uh, and he is trying to figure out where he will serve, what ministry he will serve in the future. And so I'm happy that he is taking the chance to bring to us what God has laid on his heart. I am equally, maybe more happy that we are a church that is giving him the opportunity. So, Caleb? Good morning. It's a pleasure and a privilege to be able to share God's word with you this morning. Let's all bow before the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you that we can gather together and worship you. Thank you for your word that you have given to us and revealed your heart to us. We ask that your spirit would use this passage to convict us of our sin and encourage us with your promises. 
Would you work powerfully in our hearts and stir us to praise you this morning? In your name we pray, amen. Treason, the crime of betraying one's own country, especially by attempting to kill the sovereign or overthrow the government. Now, throughout history, the crime of treason has led to the death penalty. In medieval England, the punishment included hanging or beheading. In American history, after the Civil War, a man named John Wilkes Booth assassinated the president, Abraham Lincoln, a horrendous act of treason. And Union soldiers tracked him down for 12 days, and they finally shot him. Perhaps you have been betrayed by someone close to you, and it hurts, and you long for justice. You see, we all understand that treason, the crime of betraying someone to whom you owe allegiance, is an evil, terrible crime. But it may surprise you to know that we have all committed treason on a far worse scale. Treason against God. God who is perfect and holy and just and to whom we owe all our allegiance and we have rebelled against him. And this harsh reality of our rebellion against God shows us how wonderful Romans 5, 1 through 11 is. So let's dive right in this morning. Paul's main aim in this passage is to show us that when we are justified, we have peace with God and a promise of salvation because of the precious love of Christ. This is the central message I want you to remember, that when you are justified, you have peace with God and a promise of salvation because of the precious love of Christ. We're going to dive into this central message through three simple points. Peace with God, promise of salvation, and precious love of Christ. But before diving into these points, we need to understand some context in what does it mean to be justified by faith. Look with me at verse 1 of chapter 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Our peace with God is based on the fact that we are justified by faith. So what does it mean to be justified by faith? Well, Paul actually answers this question in the previous chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 4. He goes all the way back to God's covenant with Abraham, where God promised that Abraham's offspring would be as numerous as the stars. And he quotes Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed in God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is the simplest definition of being justified by faith. When you believe in God, he counts you as righteous. Now, to believe means you trust and depend on God because you are confident that what he says is true. This is clear in Romans 4, 19 through 22, where it says, Abraham's faith in God and God's promise of offspring did not weaken or waver, even as he approached 100 years in age and his wife was near that age and barren. Yet Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I want you to think about that for a moment. By all natural means, it was impossible for Abraham 
to have offspring with his wife, Sarah. But yet he was confident that God would fulfill his promise. And Paul uses this as an example of what faith is. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Thus we see that faith is trusting and depending on God because you are confident that what he says is true. And when this happens, God counts you as righteous. Now when you think of being counted as righteous, imagine that you are in court before a judge, specifically in this case, in this passage, the judge of the universe, and he slams his gavel, declaring you innocent once and for all. That is what happens when you are justified by faith. And according to Romans 4.24, we will all be counted as righteous when we believe in him who raised Jesus from the dead. Therefore, and I cannot stress this enough, faith is not simply an intellectual knowledge about God. It's not some abstract concept of God or that God exists or some philosophy about God. The Bible says even the demons believe God and they know about God and they shudder. But the Christian faith, the faith that makes you righteous before God is in a person, a person named Jesus who died for our sins and was raised from the dead. When you put your faith in Jesus, you realize that you are guilty before God and you essentially say, I give up. I give up entrusting my own righteous deeds to save me. Lord Jesus, I trust you, I need you, and I depend on you to save me. And when you trust in Jesus, God declares you justified, innocent, righteous. How amazing is it that God counts the rebel as righteous? Yet even more amazing is that that story of our salvation does not end with us being declared as righteous. No, this is just the beginning of our life with God. And that is what Romans 5 verses 1 through 11 is talking about. Paul has just described the meaning and importance of being justified by faith, and now he will describe the results of that justification. The first is that being justified leads to peace with God. And that's the first point in this passage is peace with God. Let's look again at verse one. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to really focus on that phrase, peace with God, because it's one of the main phrases and truths in this passage. Why is peace with God so important? Well, when God created the world, it was absolutely perfect. He called it very good. There was no sickness, no sadness, no death. And then God created man in his own image to be like him and represent him and have perfect communion and fellowship with him. In the Garden of Eden, God walked with man in the cool of the day. But this all changed when the first man, Adam, chose to disobey God. In committing an act of cosmic treason against God's authority, they did what he told them not to do, and they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Ever since that day, mankind has been at war with God. Now, most people today in America abhor the suggestion that humans are at war with God. Just a couple weeks ago, for example, I, I work at Chipotle, and I was taking out the trash with a coworker, and we were talking about religion and Christianity, and, and I asked him, so are you religious? Are you Christian? Just to get the conversation started. 
and he mentioned how he grew up as a Christian in a Christian family. And then when he was, got a little bit older, they became Jehovah's Witness. And now, um, after that journey, now he's an agnostic, which means he doesn't know whether or not to believe in God. But then he said something very interesting. He said that he's a child of God at heart and that everyone is a child of God at heart. And it's this idea that we're all basically good people. We do nice things to people. We're all in God's family, right? Who would dare suggest that humans are at war with God? Yet, the Bible teaches that we are all enemies of God and our hearts were in rebellion against him. For example, earlier in the book of Romans, Romans 1.18 says, For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now, we might think of unrighteousness as people out there, the, the really extreme people who commit horrendous crimes. But that's actually not what Paul's talking about in Romans when he says unrighteousness. It's part of it, but it includes so much more. It really strikes at all of our hearts and that we all are unrighteous before God. In Paul's description of unrighteousness in Romans 1, 29 through 31, he says, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now this seems like a really harsh, perhaps really dark list, but I want to ask yourself, do these things describe you? Do you envy someone? Do you ever feel malice towards people, perhaps people who have wronged you? Do you ever boast in your accomplishments? Do you disobey your parents? Do you gossip or slander? I know I have done these things more times than I can count, and thus I am unrighteous before God. And that's why Romans 3.10 declares in no uncertain terms, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, and no one seeks for God. This includes all of you. This includes me. We do not seek for God. We are all enemies of God, and that is why we need the peace of God. Now, another question I want to ask is, what does Paul mean by the phrase peace with God? Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of peace, I think of coming home from a stressful day at work or a long day at school. Perhaps there's an exam or a paper that we had to write, and just laying on the couch, turning on the TV, closing my eyes, and just relaxing. It's this state of calmness, tranquility, this freedom from being disturbed by anything. But that's actually not the meaning that Paul is using in this passage when he talks about peace. Peace is a relational term. It means that peace has been made between hostile parties. Paul makes this clear in verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And that word reconciliation is another word Paul is using for peace. He's saying peace has been made between hostile parties. This peace is much bigger than just a personal feeling of calmness or tranquility or freedom from disturbance. 
It's a reconciled relationship with the creator of the universe. When you put your faith in Christ, you have peace with God and are no longer his enemy. Let's move on to verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, this word access is simply incredible, and to help you understand that, I want you to try and put yourself into the mind of the traditional Jew reading this passage. In the Old Testament, when the Jews were at Mount Sinai, God's glory descended upon the mountain to give Moses the Ten Commandments. As the presence of God's glory descended in fire, there was a fierce lightning storm, a thick cloud of smoke, and blasting trumpets. The whole mountain shook, and the people of Israel trembled with terror, and they had no access to the presence of God. If they so much as touched the edge of the mountain, they would be consumed in the fire of God's presence. They would die. Generations later, when the temple was built, God's glory came down and resided in the temple. And there was a chamber in the temple called the Most Holy Place, and that is where God's presence resided. And only the high priest had access to this most holy place. And even this high priest could only access it on one day a year, on the day of atonement. The people of Israel had no direct access to the presence of God. They had no direct access to, the, to grace. A priest had to go between them and beseech God on behalf of them. So for Jews, this access into grace is revolutionary. This reality that if you are justified through faith in Christ, you obtain access into grace and you stand in this grace. God's presence will not consume you in wrath, but instead give you mercy. This calls to mind Hebrews 4.16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. If you have peace with God, you can stand in God's grace with confidence, knowing that you will receive mercy. Yet faith in Jesus does not just lead to a present peace. Something more amazing is that also leads to a future hope. When you are justified, you receive the promise of salvation. And that's the second point today, the promise of salvation. Let's keep reading in verse two. It says, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We who believe in Christ have hope that one day we will see and experience the full glory of God, and that is our hope. Now, this hope is not merely a desire or wish. For example, how many of you in here are, are football fans? We got a couple, we got a few in here, all right. Okay, so when I think of the way our society uses hope, I think of you might hope the Detroit Lions might make the playoffs this year. And since I'm from California, and I grew up in California, I'm a 49er fan, I hope the 49ers make the playoffs, which might be a little bit more um, likely than, than the Lions. <laughs> but this is still nothing like the hope that Paul is talking about. Our hope of the glory of God will certainly come to pass. We can have confidence and assurance in God's promise of salvation. I want to paint a picture of what this glorious salvation looks like. 
when this salvation comes, our physical bodies will be redeemed and made new. As Romans 8.23 says, we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. We will live in a new heaven and a new earth with no more death, no more crying, and no more pain. As Revelations 21.4 says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. When all this pain is abolished, we will experience the splendor of God's glory forever. This glory is so majestic and bright and beautiful that Revelations 21:23 declares, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its, light, and its lamp is the Lamb. This is the glory that we long for and we hope for, the glory and the majesty and the illumination of Jesus Christ and experiencing that glory forever. This certainty of this glory strengthens us to rejoice in our most difficult circumstances. And that is what verses three through five are about. So let's read those verses. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given to us. We rejoice because we know what our suffering will produce. It will produce an unshakable hope in the glory of God, and that hope will not disappoint. Our final salvation is guaranteed. Now, I wanna clarify and make sure we understand what this joy means, that we do not conjure up this joy by ourselves. We don't put on plastic smiles or diminish the sorrow that real suffering brings. Rather, we rejoice because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. God's love is the source of our joy. I'm gonna circle back to this point later about God's being love, God's love being the source of our joy because I think it's so important for us to understand this morning. But I wanna linger a bit longer on this wonderful promise of salvation. Let's skip on to verse eight. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now this verse points to a past event our justification as the guarantee of a future event, God's promise of salvation, and specifically our salvation from God's judgment. Those who are justified by faith will be saved from the wrath of God. And this is a sobering reminder that there will be a day where God will judge all the earth and pour out his fury upon all the earth. Those who have rebelled against God will face his almighty, eternal, righteous judgment, being punished forever in the lake of fire. Now, no, this is a hard truth. It's a truth that our culture doesn't accept and abhors, but it is what God teaches, and it is the truth. But the amazing truth is also that those who put their faith in Jesus will be saved from this judgment that they deserve. When we see God, we will be totally freed from sin, death, and judgment. How comforting it is to know that you will not be consumed by God's wrath. How comforting it is to know that instead of punishment, you will experience pleasure in the presence of God forever. 
I pray this morning that you will feel the sweetness and the comfort of the peace with God and the promise of salvation described in this passage. But my guess is probably in a, in a crowd this large, some of you probably don't feel that sweetness and that comfort. Maybe you feel distant from God this morning. Or maybe you have begun to doubt your eternal security. Or maybe you are grieving. In these moments of feeling distant or doubting or grieving, what foundation do you fall on? Where does your mind go to for comfort and joy? Well, thankfully, Paul tells us exactly where to go to for comfort and joy. This leads to the third point, the precious love of Christ. Verses one through five and verses nine through 11 tell us about the results of our being justified. But sandwiched in between these verses is a staggering declaration of God's love. Let's read verses six through eight. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The death of Jesus for the ungodly is the reason we can have peace with God. It is the reason we can be saved from God's judgment. It is the reason we can rejoice in God. The deepest security, the deepest peace, and the deepest joy for the Christian is found in knowing that Jesus died for you. In applying this passage, I want to expose two lies that many of us tell ourselves, and I know I tell myself from time to time, that hinder us from feeling and understanding this truth of God's love for us. Now, the first lie is that we are good enough. Our culture screams at us to believe in ourselves and to follow our hearts, and we would love to believe that we are good enough to become right with God. We focus on the nice things we do for people, and we treat the sins like occasional mistakes. But the truth is that sin is not just an occasional mistake. It is a disease in our hearts. It is rebellion against God. When we break God's commandments, we rebel against him. And when we congratulate ourselves for the nice things we do, we glorify ourselves instead of God, and thus we also rebel against him. In Luke 18, verses 11 through 12, Jesus describes the self-righteous Pharisee who prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give tithes to all that I have. For me, translating that into my life, for example, I work in a college town, and that might look like, God, I thank you I'm not like these college students who go out on Friday night and they party and they make poor life choices. God, I thank you that I am not like them. I read my Bible, I go to church, I meet in prayer groups, I go to Bible study, and this is this self-righteousness that Jesus is describing. And he says this man, this self-righteous Pharisee, was condemned because he exalted himself and his deeds. Many of us identify with this man It is so natural and easy to congratulate ourselves and run to ourselves for comfort and assurance. Here we must remember that those who look to themselves for righteousness 
will be condemned. Without the work of Christ, we are weak. We are ungodly. We are sinners. We are enemies. Because, our rebellion against, because of our rebellion against God, we deserve God's wrath. And that exposes the first lie that many of us believe that we are good enough. But the second lie that many are tempted to believe is that God does not love us. This is another lie that often we speak to ourselves or that culture tells us. Have any of you ever doubted God's love for you? I'm willing to bet that any of you who have been Christians for any significant amount of time have had these moments where you're tempted to doubt God's love for you. Maybe God has allowed tragedy in your life, the unforeseen death of a loved one, a broken relationship, a devastating illness, and you begin to wonder if God really loves you. Or maybe it's your own sin, your own choices that you have made in your life, and you're experiencing the consequences of those choices. And you realize that God is the all-powerful creator who is perfect, who hates sin, who must punish sin. And God declares that his wrath is poured out against all unrighteousness. And you realize that you are weak, ungodly, hopelessly lost in your sin. And that little voice whispers in your head, God doesn't love you. He knows everything you have done. He knows every careless word. He knows every thought. How can God possibly love you when you deserve nothing but condemnation? And many of you know this voice of condemnation. But the death of Christ silences this voice. God speaks through the darkness. I love you and I have proven my love for you for sending my son, my only beloved son, Jesus, to die for you. How immense is God's love for us? Would you be willing to die for someone? Perhaps. But would you be willing to die for someone who betrayed you, who seeks to do evil against you, who seeks to kill you? And this is what Christ did for us. And his death was no ordinary death. He suffered one of the most painful forms of torture ever devised, and that being Roman crucifixion. And worse than the physical torture, he suffered the wrath of his almighty father who was pouring out his fury for all the sins we have committed and pouring out his fury upon his own beloved son. Christ did all this to save us, his enemies. So both of these voices, both of these lies, one of self-righteousness and one of self-condemnation come from the same place. They come from basing our peace and assurance off of our own works instead of the work of Christ who loves us. So in these moments when you are tempted to think, I'm good enough to rely upon myself, remember Christ's death on the cross. The painful, torturous, furious punishment that Christ endured in our place shows us that we are more sinful than we can imagine. And in these moments, we are tempted to think, how can God love such a hideous person as me? Look at the cross, the painful, torturous, hideous punishment that Jesus endured for us shows us that we are more loved than we can imagine. This is when I want to turn to verse 9 through 10. 
Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were still enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Now, how will we be saved by Jesus' life? This is an interesting part of the passage where he's been talking about Jesus' death, and now he transitions to this little phrase that we're saved by Jesus' life. Well, again, I want to try to paint a picture of you of what this looks like. Revelations 12.10 says that Satan accuses Christians before God day and night. He's working around the clock 24-7 to bring our sins before God and accuse us before God. Satan is listing the sins we've committed and all the reasons we deserve judgment. But because Jesus is alive, we know that he is at the right hand of God and he has defeated Satan and is now interceding for us. As Romans 8.34 says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who has raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Satan's accusations have no power because Jesus is defending us with his own blood, with his own sacrifice. Because of Jesus's blood and because he lives right now, we are justified, declared righteous in God's eyes. Our lives belong to him and because Jesus lives, we will be saved. Notice who does all the work in these verses. Jesus is the one who justifies us by his blood. Jesus is the one who saves us from the wrath of God. Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God. Jesus is the one who saves us by his life. Jesus is the center of this passage, the hero of our salvation. Every step of our story of salvation is because of Jesus. From being counted righteous with God to having a restored relationship with God to being saved from the wrath of God to having hope in the glory of God is all because of Jesus. I want to close with two points of application. These points are actually questions I want to ask myself and also encourage you to ask yourself. The first question is, do you have peace with God? Do you have peace with God? 1 Corinthians 3.15 exhorts us to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. Even if you have been going to church for years or been a Christian for years, we all need to examine ourselves. Your eternal destiny depends on this question. Do you have peace with God? If you are not reconciled to God, the truth is that you will experience God's righteous wrath forever. But if you do have peace with God, you will experience the joy of God's presence forever. How do you know whether you have peace with God? Well, there's really two simple questions. The first question is, is your faith in Jesus Christ? Is your faith in Jesus Christ? In other words, do you depend on Christ for your salvation? And since faith in God leads to a life of faithfulness to God, like Abraham was faithful in trusting in God's promises throughout his life, does the pattern of your life show that you believe in God? If your faith is in Christ, you have peace with God and you experience pleasure in his glorious presence forever. 
And if you are not a Christian this morning and your faith is not in Christ, I hope this passage stirs you to realize that you are an enemy of God, but that God offers peace and reconciliation if you trust and depend on Christ. The second question is, do you know the love of God as shown on the cross? Do you know the love of God as shown on the cross? In your sufferings or your sins or your temptations to doubt God, do you run to the cross and ask Jesus for grace? If you have peace with God, his love is poured into your heart and you have access to an infinite reservoir of grace. Even in your deepest pain and deepest suffering and deepest sin, God will forgive you and give you the strength to stand. And if you run to Christ and ask him for that forgiveness, then you know you have peace with God. And this leads to the final point of application. The second point of application is what is our response to having peace with God? What is our response this morning? I want you to think back on all the precious promises in today's passage. The promise of peace with the God who we have committed treason against. The promise that we have access into his infinite reservoir of grace. The promise that one day we will experience only pleasure forever in the glorious presence of God. The promise that the Holy Spirit is pouring God's love into our hearts. God's love that sent his own beloved son, Jesus, to die for the ungodly like you and me. Christ died to reconcile rebels. And the promise that we will be saved from the wrath of God we deserve on judgment day because Christ is at God's right hand interceding on our behalf. Silencing Satan's accusations. God gives these precious promises to us who have rejected God and deserve nothing from him. How else can we respond but to praise God for the staggering love that he shows us. And I'm gonna close with this final verse of this passage. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Let us rejoice in the Lord Jesus, who has reconciled us to God. Let us rejoice in the truth that we have peace with God and the promise of salvation because of Christ's precious love for us. Now, encouraging you to rejoice, I don't want to overlook those of you who are burdened or grieving. I don't want to overlook those who are feeling dry or distant. But I want to say that even in the midst of your darkness, there is still reason to praise God. If you trust and rely on Christ, you have peace with God, which means God is not against you. And if you, have the, if you trust and rely on Christ, you have the promise of salvation which means that God will never let go of you. And if you trust and rely on Christ, you can know that God still loves you since Christ died for you. So regardless of what you are going through this morning, let us all rejoice in Jesus Christ. Let us praise the one who died to save us, who rebelled against his throne. Let us praise the one who deserves all our worship, all our allegiance, and all our trust. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you this morning for your word that you have revealed to us. Thank you for convicting us of our sin. And we pray for those 
who maybe aren't convicted of their sin this morning, that you would convict them and cause them to look to you as their hope and to worship you. And thank you for the promise of peace that we can be reconciled to you. Thank you for the promise of salvation that we will one day see your face and experience your glory forever. And God, we thank you that you love us and we pray that your love would stay with us. And we thank you that you promised to keep us in your love if we trust and rely on you. In your name we pray, amen.